morning. If you have a Bible, open with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. It's also printed in the, uh, the inserts, and it's on page 930 in the Bibles that are provided. It says this one verse, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let me pray and we'll begin. Our Father, may the meditations, or the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you now, that we would hear your word and understand it and apply it in our lives. And maybe even more significantly, would you apply the truth of your gospel, the power of your word to our lives, that we would walk away refreshed, renewed, reassured of your promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Proverbs, we have to be reminded often, is more a book of principles than of God's promises. It's a book of principles as opposed to promises. And so when it says that when we work hard, we will be rich, or those who work hard will be rich, or those who don't work uh, will fall into poverty. It's a general principle, but it's not necessarily what God promises for us as his people or for people in general. To find the promises of God, we, we generally have to look elsewhere in the scriptures. It's not hard to find those promises, but Proverbs help us understand how life works. How life works more in the details of life helps us to make decisions when the decisions aren't necessarily right or wrong, black or white, but they involve nuance, gray areas and subtleties, complexities. That's why some of the Proverbs contradict each other. Not just sound like they contradict, they contradict each other in the advice that they're given, giving because one needs to be applied in one situation, another needs to be applied in another situation. When it comes to the work that we do, our vocations, the things that we do day in and day out, Proverbs is not silent. Work hard, of course. We know that. We hear it. We see it. We can find it all throughout the scriptures and all throughout church history. In things like the Protestant work ethic, and by the way, by that, I don't think it's disparaging the Catholic work ethic at all. I know many Catholics who are very hardworking. In fact, probably in general, I'd say the Catholic work ethic is oftentimes stronger than the Protestant work ethic. But when it comes to our work, I think that there are two equal yet opposite heirs that we have to be aware of. And Proverbs gets into some of these heirs. And then we'll look at, fill out the story, looking at some of the rest of the scripture. The two equal yet opposite heirs when it comes to our work and vocation. And by that, I don't mean just the work that we make money at. I mean the things that we invest our time and energy in, day in and day out. The amount of money that we're paid by the hour and our salary generally has little correspondence with the true value, the eternal value of the work that we do. 
I'll say that again. The amount that we make from our work generally has little correspondence with the value of the work that we do. And yet, and yet, I don't want you to walk away feeling hopeless for the work that you need to go to tomorrow. Or maybe you have the day off tomorrow and you go Tuesday. Or maybe you're working this evening. Maybe you're listening to this because you're working right now. You're listening to it online. See, the two equal and opposite heirs are, on the one hand, on the one hand, we think that our work is what earns us favor with God. And this, this heir is not far from any of us, because no matter how much we believe that we're saved by grace through faith alone and that our works play no role in that saving work, we still we still are constantly, continually tempted with the belief that God is going to love us more based on what we do day in and day out. Or less. More or less. You see, it's a constant battle that all of us face because, in part, we experience it generally in the rest of the realms of life, in our relationships with other people, who oftentimes do love us less or more based on what we do. And make no mistake about it, the less work that we do or the more we're lazy or the more we, uh, we, we fail to do some of the things we're responsible for, the more difficult we are to love. It makes it difficult to love when someone is just taking in a relationship and never doing work or contributing to it. But that doesn't mean that God loves you any less. See, because God is able to love each of us in a consistent way, in a faithful way, regardless, regardless of what we do or fail to do. And on the other hand of this equal yet opposite heirs is if we believe that first truth Fully, we're tempted to believe that the work that we do has little or no eternal value. We see our work, especially in the workplace, as being something that's more biding time, filling in the gap until we can do something that really matters. And I said earlier that our wages don't necessarily correspond and bear little resemblance to the actual value of work, but by that I'm not saying that the volunteer work we do to help underprivileged kids is somehow intrinsically more valuable than creating the reports for your boss at work or filling in the forms that need to be filled in to record certain things or filing the legal brief or following the procedure on the ship or preaching a sermon. One of the great mistakes through church history that that did balloon, especially through the the Middle Ages, was the belief that there was somehow this distinction between the truly meaningful jobs and the spiritual jobs, the sacred jobs, the work of the priest and the works of the work of the the nuns and, and those who were doing God's work in the church and those who were building ships. Or those who were tilling the soil or collecting the harvest. 
or teaching others. There became this sacred and secular divide, and, and so there was an elevation, and it was probably very effective as a recruiting tool to get people to be priests and nuns. Those were the people who were really close to God. But thankfully, throughout history, especially in the time of the Reformation, some of the, the, the teachings and the understanding of the ancient church came back to life and saw that the work that we do the work that we do in the workplace, the marketplace, in the community, in the civic sphere, is just as sacred as the work that a preacher does in preaching a sermon or a teacher does in teaching a catechism to kids or whatever else. There is no such thing as a sacred job and a secular job. For if we understand that God has made us and made us to work, and we will see all of the work that we do as being sacred. Now, our passage today goes on with a little bit more of a description of some of the dangers, some of the pitfalls that we can find in our work or in our pursuit of vocation. And those are helpful to understand when our work turns into something that serves us instead of serving God. And in that sense, when our work is primarily to serve ourselves, our work becomes not secular, but selfish. Not secular, but selfish. Now, why do I say that our work matters to God? Let's go back and look at Genesis before we look at our passage for today. And then we'll read through a little few more verses uh, from Proverbs chapter 23. If you go back to the first three chapters of Genesis, the very first words in every one of your Bibles, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first statement in all of the Bible is God doing work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he forms them and separates certain things and brings order into the things and shows that his creation, he spoke into nothingness and he made something and he puts it in order. And then in Genesis 127, it says God created man, human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And have dominion. God made us in his image in part to image him, to be like him in doing the work of not creating, but tending to his creation. God still takes care of his creation, but he enlists human beings to be a part of tending to that, that, that creation, of having dominion, not to abuse the creation, but to care for it. Another proverb, I didn't note which one it was in my notes. Another proverb speaks of those who uh, do harm to their livestock, who abuse their livestock as being evil, wicked. 
to have dominion, to have dominion is to care for, to tend to something. God made Adam and Eve to be his gardeners and his caretakers of a portion of his creation in that Garden of Eden. Our work was given to us by God to image God, and it is a good thing. It is a blessing. It is a way that we are like God and are meant to experience communion with God. The story goes on, and Genesis 2 tells this creation story from a little bit different vantage points. You see a little bit uh, different things, but same story, different vantage point. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's easy to look at that and say, well, why did he even put that tree in there in the first place? Seems silly. Of course he's going to do it. You tell somebody don't do something, and what do they do? They, they want to see. They want to see behind the curtain, right? They, they want to see it. But did you notice what's going on here? He gave them all these trees to eat from every single tree but he put that other tree in there not not to tempt them not to give them something that of course they were going to fall into but you see their knowledge at the beginning was limited to only that which was good Adam and Eve at the beginning were made to do good and they only did good they were imaging God in that way, not just in taking care of God's creation, but in being in, relation, in relationship with God, without any brokenness, without any, any harm to the relationship. They were in relationship with one another, naked and not ashamed, the Bible says. Nothing broken. But God, being gracious, also gave them the choice gave them a choice and he describes that choice in one way of being like God able to choose good able to choose evil and yet when they ate that when they listened to the voice of the evil one Satan They no longer had the ability to do only good. See, in one way that we are not like God, God is able to always reject the evil. God has made some of the angels so that they always reject the evil, knowing good and evil. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit and had that knowledge of good and evil, they were not able to only do good anymore. Their only choice was to do evil. And what happened? Shame came on them between one another. Shame before God. They hid themselves. But more than that, we find in Genesis 3, 16 through 19, that that choice of eating that fruit deeply impacted the work that Adam and Eve were called to do and all of us in succession have been called to do. 
It says this, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's important to note that the pain in childbearing does not limit the woman's role to the home or to some type of sphere in raising children. Rather, it's speaking specifically to a function that only women have, a role that only women can bear children. And so he speaks directly to the women, to this woman, and by extension, all women. This is something that you will experience. Now there will be pain in not just childbearing, but even in raising up the children. And with this knowledge of evil and the inability, there will be conflict between husband and wife. And the temptation for the woman will be to want to have the man's role. And the temptation of the man is to exercise dominion in an authoritarian and overpowering way. For God has called the husband to be the head of the household, to love and serve the wife as Christ loved and served the church, but not to be abusive or domineering. And you have this conflict even in the relationship. But he goes on to explain to Adam. And by extension, when he's talking about Adam, he's talking about all of humanity and all the work we do, male and female. He says to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Not that the wife's advice is always wrong. Please don't hear that wrong. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One of the most common things that all of us experience in our vocations and even in our work that we volunteer with or do in the home that we're not paid for is that we experience the thorns that make the work that we want to sometimes, oftentimes enjoy. We studied for, we, we want to do, and yet it becomes a burdensome thing. Sometimes it's just a season. It's troublesome for a season, then it gets enjoyable again. Sometimes We're in jobs that we just hate and everything is a grind. Sometimes we experience poverty. And not only is work a curse or or thorny, but a home life is filled with stress because we don't know how we're going to pay the bills. And so we're always experiencing the anxiety of that kind of stress. And what God explains here, and we're going to continue to explore as we go through this series over the next few weeks, because we can't just cover this in one week. What God explains is that that decision to want to be like God that Adam and Eve made, I want to have your knowledge. It's the same decision that Satan and all the demons made. I want to have your knowledge, God. It brought about this curse that we experience, this brokenness in all of our life. And God's given us an explanation, not just, not just that it happens, but part of, pull back the curtain part of the way and explain part of why it happens. 
And it's not just Adam and Eve. It's easy to kind of go, well, man, why did Adam and Eve have to make that mistake? Just blame it on somebody else. But the reality of original sin that Adam and Eve created that we inherited is that we echo, we repeat, we mimic Adam and Eve's sins over and over again. And so even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, we would sin. We have sinned. We've done these things ourselves. We've said to God, I want to do this my way in our work especially. Let me handle this my way. And we experience the curse of that. God gives us an explanation. It's not outside of his control. It's not all our fault. Satan bears some responsibility as well. But that he has a plan for bringing redemption to this situation. God brings redemption to our work. And he gives us satisfaction and hope and a reason to continue to do it and pursue it. Now our verse today we looked at verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 29. It says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. God has designed us to work and to have skill in work. The word wisdom that's used over and over throughout Proverbs, talks of wisdom and pursuing wisdom, is not just having the right answers or being intelligent or being able to apply certain things in the right way. It's not less than that. But the word wisdom is used to describe an artisan, a carpenter, a builder, somebody who has a skill set to be able to use that skill set to make things. When Solomon was told he was going to rule over the kingdom. When he inherited this, the, the throne, he prayed to God, 1 Kings chapter 3, he prayed to God and asked God to give him wisdom so that he could be an effective king. Wisdom for the work that he was being called to do. When we seek God's wisdom... It is first and foremost for the work that God has called us to do and designed us to do. And this proverb affirms that calling. Do you see a person, a man, man or woman, when you see, read man, don't necessarily limit it to the to gender here. When you see a person skillful in his work, that is somebody that is exercising the gifts that God has given him to do. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, makes the interesting point that people who are experts in their field, experienced professional athletes to, to, uh, to skilled professionals, doctors, lawyers, and everything in between. I would say this applies even in my experience in both uh, the, 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 my role as a consultant and role in, past, in the pastor. He says it takes roughly in the neighborhood of 10,000 hours for somebody to reach a point of excellence in their field. And you think about that, that's a, that's a lot of time, days, months, years to become truly skilled in a field, 10,000 hours. 
And developing those skills, there's no shortcut for developing, becoming skilled in a profession. If you are working in a profession and still developing those skills, young in your profession or even in college and pursuing it, don't lose heart that you won't have enjoyment in your, in your, your work, but also don't lose heart if it seems to take a long time to develop expertise in those fields. If it takes a long time to develop truly skillful work, because it'll bear fruit. The language that's used here, that he will stand before kings and not stand before obscure men. Obscure men is a little bit of a funky phrase, in it, obscure phrase in and of itself. It basically means those who are kind of off to the side and, and may even have a connotation of, of swindlers or, or those who are trying to, to, to take shortcuts in life and, and, and uh, as opposed to a good king who's called to put people who are able to execute their roles well in those positions. So the proverb is commending, investing yourself in that kind of study and practice that bears fruit and is recognized by the king. Now you say, we don't have kings. I work for a boss who's kind of a, 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 a swindler himself. Not very good. He doesn't seem very faithful. He's not very good with his employees. But if we understand the gospel, and if we understand who Jesus is in our lives, then we're brought to the reality that when we work, we're not working first for the person we report to in our workplace or even to our children who seem to maybe have dominion over us some of the time, or for a parent or for some other expectation that we put on ourselves or somebody else puts on us. When we work, we are working first and foremost for Jesus our King. For he's put all of those in authority, whether it's in a place of governmental authority or national authority or in your workplace, in each of those positions to exercise authority. It doesn't mean that they do it well, but God has put those people in those places and reminded us that we ultimately are working for Christ. A case in point can be found in multiple New Testament texts. Colossians 4 reminds us when it's speaking of, of, uh, of, of slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. It says to the slaves, work for your master, not as a people pleaser or somebody who's just trying to work hard when, when the eyes are on them and, and then sloughs off when they're not. It says, work as if you were working for the Lord. Because we are working for the Lord. And you ask the question, well, is the Bible commending slavery then? And the answer to that is, is no. But the answer to that in our context needs to be drawn out a little bit more. You see, one of the questions I want to address in this series is, what do you do when you're in a bad work environment? When you hate your job, you find no fulfillment in it. Should you stay or should you go? 
And that's not an easy question to answer, but I want you to consider this, that we in this place and time in this country quite likely have more work mobility than any other culture in all of human history and even other cultures today. We in our context have more work mobility than any other, but you may feel locked in, you may be locked in, but we have more work mobility than any other place. And what God says is that his gospel, the truth of his gospel coming into the world and his reigning, Jesus' reigning over all of creation is relevant not just in the freest of cultures, in our culture today. It is relevant and meaningful to those who are not in places where they can leave a job they hate. Now, how significant would that be to hear if you're a slave and you have no ability to leave a situation, to hear the words, God cares about you in your position, and he knows and he hears your cries. Know that the work that you are doing, even if you despise it, is work that is important in building Christ's kingdom. Stories told of a janitor helping to put a man on the moon back in the 60s who when asked what he did for his work, he answered, I'm working to put a man on the moon. Not that he was a janitor. But he had a vision of what the bigger picture was in the work that he's doing. People who work on top secret aircraft oftentimes are commissioned, built to build a certain part, and they're given just the design for that part, and they don't even know how it's going to fit in the whole aircraft. But they do know that they're working on something that's significant to accomplish a greater mission of defending the nation. Oftentimes, we don't have a direct view of what the work we're doing, how it is, is useful for Christ in building his kingdom. We don't have the middle picture of the aircraft design, but we have the bigger picture that Christ is bringing his kingdom to bear in creation, restoring what was lost in the fall. And the work that we are doing right now is not just useful for you paying the bills. It is useful for bringing that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Do you have the bigger picture of what that is? See, because if we view our work as throwaway work, as something made of plastic that's meant to be disposable, we will be beat down constantly. We will be always looking for something else. We will never be satisfied. Now you say, but, but what if we have the power to change it? Or what if I have the power to change it for somebody else? And this is where one of the most important things, places that we want, I want to go with this sermon series, is how do we bring redemptive, restorative practices in our workplaces so that people don't experience the brutality of slavery? So that we're bringing transformation into the work that is Christ-like in giving people a sense of meaningfulness. And it's more, it's not less than, but it's more than just paying meaningful wages. In part, it's giving people an understanding of some of the bigger picture. I am important 
in fulfilling this larger mission of the organization in whatever role in the organization I'm a part of. That doesn't mean that all of work is always going to be satisfying and joyful and fulfilling. But it'll help not only in serving your own satisfaction, but serving the satisfaction of others. Now, here are three things that stand in the way of us doing that and experiencing that in our workplace. Chapter 23, verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Strong language. It echoes some of Jesus' hyperbolic language. If, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I don't want anybody to go and put a knife to the throat, but what he's saying is don't get caught up in the materialism and desire for the things that the king has or somebody else that you want to be like has the materialism recognize cut off cut off the appetite altogether because materialism will consume you and take you away from trying finding fulfillment in your work chapter 22 23 and 24 by the way is a little bit of a different section of proverbs and there is some continuity in this section as opposed to the section that came before in chapter 10 to 21 and, and, and some others where it's very uh, isolated one by one. So there is a theme here going on. Chat, verse 3. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. Sorry, that was with the first one. They are deceptive food. They will lead you astray. Materialism is a danger. Verse 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle, eagle toward heaven. Another vivid image. If you walk away from this today, remember these images. The knife to the throat and wealth flying away, sprouts wings, flying away like eagle toward heaven. If your motivation for your work is primarily the pursuit of wealth, it is a fleeting security. Now, interestingly, oftentimes materialism and the pursuit of wealth aren't necessarily overlapping. You see, for the materialist, the desire is to have and use the stuff, to have the cake, to, to eat the cake. For the one pursuing wealth, oftentimes it's a temptation to hoard. They'd rather have their cake than to eat it. Not all of us fall in either of these places, but there's an equal danger in both of those things to pursue the materialism or to the pursuit of wealth. The third danger, verse 6, is do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Now here we get into even more 
wisdom for choosing our workplaces or choosing our partnerships? Who do we align ourselves with? And again, sometimes we can't control this, but oftentimes we can, especially in our context. And of course, those with means could choose this in, in Solomon's day, King Solomon's day as well. But let me flip this parable around, this last example around, and ask you when you approach your work, when you approach your work, is it primarily to feed yourself? Are you like this one who is inwardly calculating, always looking to see what you can get out of somebody before you're looking to see what you can put into somebody? Classic song and movie, Nine to Five, it's all taking and no giving. And I think this is the place where we have the most opportunity to transform our places of work and even our mindset and ask ourselves, who has God put us alongside with? Who has God partnered us with? And how can I pour into that person to improve their life? To mentor them, to support them in difficult times or through difficult projects, to provide the amount of structure that they need to be able to succeed in their work, to think first of fulfilling the larger vision, mission, or even seeing that other person get the glory for a job well done and not be concerned about our own. To make sure that the person is compensated well, that their work environment is healthy, to guard the work environment against those caustic other employees and, and protect people from them, to not see them necessarily all as bad, but to see them as having opportunity to experience something new as well. You see, how does the gospel shed light on our work? One of the most important, significant ways that it sheds light on our work, is like I said earlier, it corrects those equal and opposite errors. It gives us meaning and value in our work, but it also communicates to us that our identity is not ultimately tied up in the work that we do. Case in point, somebody asks you, what do you do? You say what you do for work, not what you did yesterday or what you do in the home. What do you do for work? The the psychologist, psychiatrist, and uh, an author who speaks about wealth and poverty, oftentimes wealth and poverty are tied with work, gives this example of differences in cultures. If you ask somebody who is poor, what the, well, if you ran into two people in a dinner party, and one of them is wealthy, and one of them actually middle class, and one of them is poor, and say a third person is, is wealthy, what's the first question that comes out of somebody's mouth when you meet somebody new? Almost always, if you're in the middle class, It's the question, what do you do? Because it defines our identity. If you ask somebody in in poverty class, in in, in poverty, what's that first question that comes out of your mouth in a party that's almost never is the question asked, what do you do? She says, observe it. If you're in different environments, almost never, what do you do? Interestingly, if you're in a really wealthy, high class, uh, really wealthy old money, that question almost never is asked either. 
is a very middle class kind of question, but it reveals something about our temptation as middle class people that we find a great sense of identity in what we do. And the truth of the gospel says that your work matters, but it is not ultimately the measure of your identity. The truth of the gospel says God made you and he loves you. Though you have sinned against him, he has forgiven you by the blood of Christ. His value in you isn't based on what you've done, but it is based entirely on his love for you. And you see, this is a very different thing because almost all of us have experienced motivation to do our work throughout our entire lives by guilt. You got to get this done. You got to meet this deadline. If you don't do this, this thing will happen. And God tells us about those consequences. These things will happen. But he doesn't give us those consequences primarily as a motivation. He gives them as a warning. And he comes and he shows us what true work is by starting it himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. And he says to us, like little children, come and help me with this project. God looked at his work and he said it was good. And he said, I want you to help do these things that are good. He said, if you don't love, if you don't do this work, I'm not going to love you. No, he never said that. He said, I love you. And that love is never ending. It doesn't fail when you leave and run off like the prodigal son. In fact, the most dangerous place you can be is like the older brother who thinks he's owed something by God because he's been the faithful one. See how our work, we can turn it around and try to put God in our debt and tell him, you owe, it. you owe me. You have to do this for me. And how many people, how many people do you know, verse 6, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, don't desire his delicacies, for inwardly calculating, eat and drink. How many people do you truly have a good relationship with who are always just self-calculating? We're always out to see how can I get the most out of you. Those are the people you avoid at all costs at work. You don't want to partner with them. If you view God that way, he's just trying to get something out of you, then you'll never experience true joy in your work. You'll never experience true joy in your life. You'll never experience a closeness with him and it will also ultimately impact all of your relationships around you. You'll be hoarding your wealth, fearful. You'll try to find pleasures in materialism. You'll try to find the shortcut to doing your job. You won't find satisfaction in developing the 10,000 hours to do your work skillfully. But that's not who God made us to be and how God made us. And it's not the promises of work that he's given us. 
Now look, I know that there are many more difficult questions that many of you have, and I, I've been able to engage a few people in conversation over the recent weeks, and I hope to uh, more even as this sermon series uh, continues to build and blossom. We get into more of the Proverbs and the, the specifics. What do I do when this difficult thing happens? But hopefully you have sort of a big picture from today's of, of God's purpose for work and, and some hope, some hope for your work and whatever type of work God's called you to do. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we look around us at the work that, of your hands. The heavens declare your glory and the earth below your handiwork. We marvel that you are a skilled craftsman the culminating work of your creation being human beings made in your own image. We marvel at the beauty of this creation that you've made and we, we long to experience the restoration of your creation. And as we groan and long for that, will you help us to be agents of that restoration in our work? Whether it's in a workplace outside the home or in the home or in a school or wherever it may be. May we feel your delight in doing the work you have made us and called us to do. Father, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.